invite you to turn to the 51st Psalm. The last several weeks I've been preaching from the Psalms. And 50, Psalm 51 is the text where we'll be today. And I want to read verses 1 through 4, but I want you to, if you will, to hold your Bible open there on your lap. Because the, really the, the message involves other verses that I'll be referring to. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. In all the time that I've been preaching, about 30 years, I think, I, I know that I have not preached from the 51st Psalm, but one other time. I was pastoring in Iowa Park, Texas in the mid-60s, and I preached from this Psalm. And the reason I remember the message is because of what happened after the sermon was over. When I gave the invitation, I saw a man coming forward. I had seen him in the service, a stranger, in an auditorium about this size, and he was coming down the aisle weeping uncontrollably. He was just emotionally distraught. And he fell down. He didn't kneel at the altar. He just fell flat on his face at the altar and was sobbing. And when I was able to understand what was happening, visited with him a little there as we got to a pew, he told me that he could identify with David's sin and wanted restoration for his marriage. After the service was over, we ling he lingered a while and we went into my office and he visited with me. He told me that he was a member of the City View Baptist Church in Wichita Falls, Texas. And he said he got up that morning and thought he'd go to church. And for some, some reason, he was just drawn to, to, to come to our church in Iowa Park. And we talked about some things he could do to restore his life. And he left, and I never saw him again. The 51st Psalm is a picture of a man, of, a, of the wrenching of a man's heart who recognized that he had failed to be the man God wanted him to be. And it raises one of the most important questions in life. The question is this. When someone utterly fails in God's plan for his life, is it possible to recover? Or to put it another way, is it possible to get up off the canvas after the knockout blow has been thrown? The Bible indicates 
that this man David had more promise and more problems than any other man in history. God had gifted him in a unique way for life and service, but he utterly blew it in terms of God's plan for his life. One of the great tragedies of life is when we think that we are above the laws of God that govern other people. That's what happened in David's life. He had received so much adulation and so much praise and glory from the people that he thought he was above the laws of God for other people. It's interesting to me that the Bible says that when David looked upon Bathsheba bathing on the top of that house, it was at the time when his troops were in the, ba in the field at war. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that the king always led his troops into battle. It was a responsibility God had designated to the king. So evidently, David had come to a lazy time in his life and he sent somebody else to do the job that God had designated him to do. And I have found from the experience of life that if you're not exactly where God has designated you to be, then you're in for some big trouble. And so David committed adultery with Bathsheba and she got pregnant and then the great cover-up began. He tried to hide his guilt. He sent her husband on a suicide mission into battle and thought he had his tracks covered. But one day a prophet came to David who was concerned about the sin of his king and of the spiritual impotence that sin had caused. And he asked David a question ostensibly to, to, to find his counsel or his advice about something. He said there was a man who had one little ewe lamb. It was all he had. He cherished that lamb with all of his heart. And his neighbor had many sheep and many cattle. And one day the rich man had some, some, some folks come uh, to visit him and he wanted to feed them. And so instead of taking one of his lambs out of his many, he took this little ewe lamb from the man and David's anger welled up in him. He said that man must restore to the poor man four times what he has taken and his life is in jeopardy. It's always easier to be condemnatory and critical of the sin in other people's lives than it is to recognize the sin that is in our own. He was furious and when his anger subsided, Nathan pointed his finger, you know the rest of the story, at David and said, You, thou art the man. Now having been reminded of that background, let me ask the question again. Is it possible when one utterly fails in, his, in the plan of God for his life to recover? Or is it possible to get up off the canvas after the knockout blow has been thrown. Well, it was in David's case, and I trust in the case and the life of that man from Iowa Park. But there has to be some kind of clue as to how that recovery takes, takes effect, how it happens. Well, first of all, it comes as David, or the psalmist, in the recognition of our sin for what it is. 
Now David calls his sin in verses 1 through 3 by three names. He calls his sin transgressions. The word means rebellion. It means willful disobedience of God's law. It wasn't that David had just slipped up. It wasn't that he had done something in the moment of weakness. Or it wasn't something that he could blame on somebody else or some circumstance over which he had no control. He willfully rebelled against God and disobeyed His law and he knew it and admitted it. It wasn't the violation of some impersonal law that he committed. It was high treason and rebellion against a rightful sovereign. And he uses the word for the plural transgressions to indicate that the sin we always put on David is not the real problem. David was saying, all through my life at this point in time, I was living in willful disobedience to God and my adultery was just the crowning blow of that rebellion. I have a friend who preached a revival in West Texas. And he lived, he stayed for a week in the home of a couple who had a little child, a little boy about four or five years old. And they were somewhat older as, as, as a married couple. They'd, they'd had this child late in marriage. They couldn't have children for a long time. And this little boy was the apple of their eye. He was somewhat, um, well, he was a spoiled brat, just to be honest. And, I mean, my friend said he belonged to the house ape species. He was in he was intolerable. He said one morning, they were, the first morning they were sitting down at the breakfast table and he was sitting there and he was on the side of the table, a little boy sitting on the end of his booster chair and the parents had him a bowl of cereal sitting there. He just thrust that bowl of cereal out on the table and it turned over and spilled all over my friend. He said the, the mother was so embarrassed she grabbed a towel and was wiping off the milk and and he said the guy was over there trying to settle things down. He said to his boy, he said, you can't do that. He said little boy stuck out his bottom lip and said, I can do whatever I want to do. That's transgression. David said it was like this in my life. A man who is a transgressor is a person, is the creator, is the created saying to the creator, so you brought me into this life, so what? And so everything that I possess is something you set before me. So what? I can do whatever I want to with my life. If I want to send a man to do my job, I'll do it. If I want to take a man's love of his life, I'll do it. If I want to violate your law, if I please to do it, I will. It's transgression, it's violation, it's rebellion. And he named his sin in verse 2. He called his sin iniquity. The word means crookedness. It means warped against the straight line so that the law of God is a straight line in through our life. And he said, the psalmist said, when I put my life up against the straight line of God's law, it's as warped as a little child's handwriting on his tablet what Paul meant when he said the law will not get you to God but the law will show you how crooked your life is when you place your life up beside it 
And he called his sin, in the third place, he called it sin. And the word means to miss the mark in the path God has set before us. Now watch this. If God has a plan and a will and a way for your life and you miss that, your sin is no less than David's. And so he said, my sin needs to be blotted out. The significance of that is that under the Levitical law, when you had, when you had a transgression, the curse was placed in a tablet and it could only be erased by the priest. He's saying, let somebody erase my curse and I need to be washed and I need to be cleansed. And that idea of cleansing there is the, is the performance, the, the process of the high priest when he declared a leper clean. Now modern man may look upon his sin like some gigantic zit but David looked upon his sin as malignant leprosy that only God could cleanse. Second aspect of this process. David said that he experienced four consequences as the result of his sin and prays four prayers. In verse 2 he said, My sin makes me feel dirty... And, I, and he prayed for cleansing. He said, wash me thoroughly. I was sharing with Dr. Parkinson um, th this text that I was going to talk about today, this week. He said, I bet he wasn't talking about the gentle cycle of the Maytag washing machine. He wasn't talking about the gentle cycle of the Maytag washing machine. He was saying, I'll accept any discipline in my life as long as I can feel clean. Now, if you'd followed the, the, the wash woman on wash day in David's time, you wouldn't find her going down to the laundromat, plugging four quarters in the Maytag, putting it on the gentle rub cycle and sitting over in the corner reading True Confession magazines. You wouldn't find her doing that. They attacked the dirt. I mean, they took it out to the water and they beat it against the rocks. And David said, wash me thoroughly. Beat me and trample me. Dash me against the stone. Hammer me with the mallet. Scrub me with caustic soap. Do anything as long as that foul spot dissolves from the texture of my life. He wanted to be clean. Now I have a feeling that some of us look upon forgiveness as a, as a small light, small matter. You know, we kind of say, oh well, God will forgive and I remind you that when Isaiah pronounced the woe of God upon his own life at the recognition of his sinful mouth that God sent a seraphim to, to fetch a live coal from the altar, red hot, so hot that he had to take it in tongs, and he went straight to the problem in Isaiah's life and touched that most intimate spot of a man's body, his lips. And I can remember as a kid listening to preachers preach on this, I thought he must have screamed when that happened in pain for the forgiveness that comes in washing and cleansing is no small matter. In verse 8, David identifies the second consequence. He said, The weight of my guilt makes me feel physically ill 
and he prayed for the joy of life to return. A number of years ago, 1,500 doctors were, were given a questionnaire, had several questions on it, but the main question was, how many folks, how many people come to you as a, as a, as a physician who have a physical illness that is medically treatable? Now, how many would you say that would be? that come to a doctor that have a physical illness that is medically treatable, would you say 50% or 30%? Try 2%, believe it or not. The physician said that 2% of the people who come to us have a physical illness that is medically treatable and the rest are physically ill because they have a spiritual or emotional problem. That's what David said. He said, you're crushing my bones. My sin has gotten me down. I can't get up. I am physically ill because of my sin. And he prayed for the joy of life to return to his bones. And in verse 12, he identifies the third consequence. He said that the friendship and the fellowship he had with God had been broken and he prayed for the joy of his salvation to be restored. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I tell you that the most traumatic experience in life is when a man discovers that he is no longer in fellowship with God. The most traumatic experience in life is when a man wakes up to the fact that he and God are no longer friends. Now what does he mean when he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me? Remember that we're looking back at that statement from a New Testament perspective and when the New Testament age began, the Holy Spirit came to indwell permanently. So when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, He comes to indwell you permanently. But in the Old Testament, He was not there permanently. He wouldn't come and then he would go. And, 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 and the first time we see this statement, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, is in the experience of Saul, King Saul. And it says that the Holy Spirit departed from him. And from that time, Saul, this vicious, violent man, started pursuing David to kill him. I think what David was saying here is, oh God, don't let me get like Saul was. Don't let me become bitter and jealous and envious. Don't let me get so full of anger and resentment toward life that I'll become like Saul. You know what it means to lose friendship and fellowship with God? It means that you become a condemner of God's people and God's law and God's things. You become weary of prayer, cynical about love, disillusioned about faith. You begin to feel that the battle between good and evil is not worth the struggle. Does that sound like anybody you know? And all the joy is gone and the song is gone. Does that sound like anybody you know? And you might want to pray, bring, oh Lord, to my heart, bring back the springtime and take away the cold and dark of sin. Come into my heart, sweet Holy Spirit. Make me warm and tender once again. Does that sound like any prayer you've prayed? One of the saddest things about Beethoven's life was that he went stone deaf. 
and he heard only intellectually some of the compositions he had written. I'm told that if you go to Bonn on the Rhine, where he was born, his house is made into a museum. And one of the most poignant displays in that house is this case that has all these ear trumpets in it that Beethoven used to try to hear music again. Some, they say, is about an inch long. Some are as long, as big as two feet. Can't you just see that old man with an ear trumpet in his ear straining to hear music he'd never hear again? It's the, it's the picture of the great composer saying, Take not my music from me. Can't you just see David with his hand cupped to his ear trying to hear God? Can't you just see him with his hands over his eyes trying to see God again? Can't you just see him with his hands upstretched trying to feel God again? But his sin had ruined his fellowship. Sing me the song of a lad that's gone. Say, could that lad be I? Give me all that was there before Give me the sun that's shone. Give me the eyes. Give me the soul. Give me the lad that's gone. You ever cried that cry? And David in verse 1 identifies the fourth consequence. He said, I'm getting what I deserve. And he prayed for a fresh experience of grace. He said, According to thy loving kindness, blot out my transgressions. According to thy great compassions, it's tender mercies in the King James. The Hebrew word is womb. Isn't that amazing? According to thy womb. It's a reference to the tenderness of a mother. He's saying, according to your tenderness, has a mother, with a mother's love, blot out my transgressions. He knew he's getting what he deserved. I love that verse. People are always saying to me, Gerald, all I want in life is just to get what I deserve. I always respond, that's the last thing I want in life, what I deserve. You know what we'd get if we got what we deserve? We'd get death. God said to Adam, the soul that sins shall die. And he didn't. And so theologians have done a great work trying to explain why he didn't. Some say, well, what he meant was when you get older because you sin, you're going to die. Some say what he meant was that, he's, that when you die, when you sin, you die spiritually. What he said was when you sin, you die. Now, what is an explanation for why he didn't? What is an explanation for why we don't die when we sin? The only, the only explanation I have is that we are sustained in life by His grace, all living on death row. If we got what we deserve, we'd die. Now David didn't say, I want you to blot out my transgressions because most of the time I'm a pretty good fellow. 75% of the time I do what you want me to. He threw himself upon the womb of God, upon the tender mercy of God, and prayed that God would show him grace. And grace means to be forgiven when we don't deserve to be forgiven to be accepted when we, don't be need, we deserved, when we don't deserve to be accepted and loved when we don't deserve to be loved. Now that leads me to the last thought, and you're such good listeners. 
I hope you can hang in for five more minutes. Not only did he see his sin for what it was, not only did he recognize the consequences of sin, and that's true for every one of us, whether that sin is a sin of the attitude and disposition or physically, but he describes the conditions that are necessary for grace. Now God gives grace and that grace is free, but we have to put ourselves in a position for that grace to be offered. And there are three conditions. The first is self-honesty, verse 3. He said, I know my sin. You know what he meant by that? He meant, I acknowledge my sin. My sin is ever before me, he said. He wasn't saying just that every time I look around, turn around, I see Uriah, or every time I turn a corner, I see what I've done. He didn't, God didn't want us to live under the torture and on a guilt trip. What he was saying was, I acknowledge my sin. Now there are two enemies to self-honesty. One is self-deception. Now I know what a lot of you are doing this morning. It's what I do all the time. Well, David did this and I've never done anything. Well, I'm a pretty good old boy. I'm a pretty good guy. That's self-deception. And the second enemy of self-honesty is self-justification. You know people who have every kind of excuse for every era of their life. I mean they have an excuse for every mistake. And they've developed this system of rationalization to say, well, I did this way because so-and-so did that way. That's self-justification. And it's an enemy to, 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 to forgiveness. Secondly, the second condition was confession. Verse 4, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now confession is not just listing our sins, it's agreeing with God concerning them. Now, my, my children, my son, well, you know, he'll list his sin. He, he'll list the things that, that we, you know, and sometimes he'll say it's no big deal. Because a person lists his sin does not necessarily mean that he feels the same way that God feels about it. Confession is acknowledging, is, is, is feeling the same way toward sin in my life as God feels toward it. Now that's pretty heavy stuff. I agree with you, God, in the way you look at my sin, that it's how you feel about it. F.B. Meyer said one time he was confessing his sin to God and just really getting down getting right about it. He thought when I got through confessing my sin, I thought I'd hear God say, oh, that's okay, you're not a bad boy. I thought he'd kind of pat me on the head and say, you're a good boy. He said, when I finished confessing my sin, what I heard from heaven was a resounding amen. You're right, brother, you did. Confession. Then finally, I hope you're with me for this. This is the key. A submissive spirit. He said, a broken and wounded heart you will recognize. You will not ignore. You know, words David said, I know, God, that you're tired of dead flowers and religious arrangements. And I know you abhor 
our coming to you with all of our religious trappings and saying, okay, God, here's all this religious stuff and that ought to, that ought to, that ought to satisfy, that ought to recompense. And, and he said, I know you abhor this religious trapping that we offer you. What you want is a broken heart and a wounded spirit for my sin. A man died in the service he was a decorated hero for the military United States. and He was brought back for burial. He was a general. He had many decorations. And so a newspaper reporter interviewed his mother. And the question he was after was, the answer he was after was to the question, when were you the proudest of your boy? When was your love the greatest? I bet it was when he was a high school kid, just a super athlete and a great student. And she said, no, not really. That really wasn't when. I felt the greatest pride surging in me for my kid. Oh, he said, I bet I know. It's when he graduated from the military academy with honors and started out into service. Oh, she said, no, that, that wasn't it, wasn't it. Oh, he said, I bet I know it's when he won the Congressional Medal of Honor and was decorated as one of the greatest heroes to ever serve for his country. She said, not really. That wasn't a time when my heart felt its greatest pride for my son. Then he said, I know what it was. It's when he gave up his life for his country. She said, let me tell you when it was. She said, when he was about seven years old, I gave him specific instructions not to go out to play. And I left the house and came back shortly, and he had willfully disobeyed me and had gone out to play. He said he got himself all dirty and scratched up, and she said, I was really disappointed. He said he came into the den where I was, and he had great big old tears on his face. And he said, he looked up at me and said, Mother, I'm sorry. And she said, in that moment, I felt the deepest love and pride for my boy that I have never been able to forget. Now the psalmist said, God, I know that when I come to you with a broken heart, that your love for me then will never be any greater. Let's pray together. Father, the song expressed the truth that our choir sang today, we're all sinners saved by grace. We acknowledge our sin. And for some of us here this morning, it is a kind of a religious pride that you despise. And for some of us, it's willful treason and rebellion against a holy plan. We all stand in need of your forgiving grace and love. Speak to our heart today. 
bring to us, make clear to us your plan for this moment and that, that we'd not sin in missing it. Because I pray in Jesus' name. Now we have three invitations this morning. They're just this simple. An invitation to receive Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior of your life. His death at Calvary makes possible your redemption. And the high priest of God will blot out your transgressions. That's called justification. He'll erase the book. It's conditional upon your surrender and faith to Jesus Christ. There are some who need to come as, those, as that person who came in the early service this morning to join the church. Or perhaps others of us who need to come to say, I've lost the friendship the song and the joy of my salvation and I want it returned, restored. Whatever reason God leads you to come, we invite that you do it in obedience to Him immediately upon standing. And as our choir sings, would you come?